1: I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands for a long time after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge and stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and we're part of it every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal Elders, past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Dan Sargas.
0: And I'm Sada Khan. We're back in the studio, live in the studio. We're going to be having having a really special guest coming up with us very shortly. We always love it when we are face-to-face with people after such a long time away. Ahead on the show, we'll be joined live in the studio by Kumba Merry Man, sound artist and performer Rowan Savage. You might know him as a DJ and producer Salvage, creating abstract and hard-hitting experimental club music. Or maybe you've seen him cut across the ballroom with Kiki House's Midnight. Rowan has long worked at the intersection of of queer club music performance and connection with country helming a truly unique creative output um the album deep gecko energy released earlier this year feels like a culmination of all of that blending sludgy and bassy rhythms with field recordings to explore his relationship to country and his world making continues he has a performance coming up as part of soft center and in a current showing of work at the Gallery Cement Fondue as part of NARA Deep Listening, its immersive exhibition that invites meditation on the care of culture and country through acts of listening.
1: Salvage, Autotonic Sensory Meridian, we're joined in the studio live with experimental sound artist, producer, and DJ, uh, Rowan Savage, with a practice that explores themes around country, culture, um, and heritage, queerness, and spirituality. We're excited to have him here to talk through all this and more. Uh, Rowan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a big year for you, exploring exploring so many facets of your of your creative output. I want to start with what we just heard, um, a track from your first label release, Deep Gecko Energy. It's an album laid with a lot of context and, and musical techniques. Can you describe the process of bringing this together? Uh,
2: yeah, so the, the process of actually creating the music, my process is... Super kind of labor-intensive. Like I'll um, take field recordings on my country, which is Commeriary Country, Gold Coast. Um, I live off-country, so um, I try to get back as much as possible, but um, that's travel time. Uh, then I need to take the time to clean all of those up, turn them into kind of usable sounds in a club kind of context, like making a, a kick, you know, or a bass line out of like the sound of a stick hitting a tree. is is quite a quite a process. Um, and, you know, then bring all of that together um, into one place. And then for the actual release itself, um, I had shared a bill with um, Female Wizard um, for uh, Room 2, which was an online thing um, run by Rag and um, Patrick. And I think we kind of clicked me and um, female wizard kind of clicked as a result of sharing that bill was a really nice online event during COVID. that it was so hard i think to for people to feel community online everyone's trying to make it happen but it was difficult um, but that was one of the events that really managed it and so we started chatting about a release on her label um and it went from there
0: And in your production work, you often work with, like we were talking about, and you were explaining to us field recordings as a means to connect with your country, which is such a special practice. Can you speak to how, of all things, sound is a way you've been able to forge a relationship with country?
2: For sure. So I I didn't grow up um, knowing about my culture. You know, I had like family circumstances Um, that meant that, That wasn't the case. They were kind of partly to do with systemic racism and just partly to do with, you know, family circumstances like everyone has. Um, And so once I started to get in touch with um, my family and culture and country, I was like, what can I do to deepen this relationship, particularly in a context where um, a lot of our cultural traditions have been smashed by colonialism and aren't as available, you know, as they otherwise would be. And so I've always been a sound person one way or another. I was already doing... I'd already started doing a bit of music making, electronic music making kind of stuff. And the practice of taking field recordings was really about deep listening for me. Recreating that relationship with country using those coloniser technologies, um, but doing my own deep listening um, and... Uh, you know, using that to make something that I I think and hope, you know, is is something that that has value with that foundation. Um,
0: There's also a lot to be said about the history of field recordings and how that's been used, like you were saying, in a colonial context, um, but also by others to extract and co-opt from cultures that are not their own. And we see this still occurring in club contexts when it comes to black culture. how do you ensure your production is of care and reclamation?
2: So I guess what I try to do is to never have, I'm, I'm glad that you use the word extract because I always say extractive is like, I think people use field recordings in extractive kind of ways. I'm always trying to do the opposite of that. So how can I be as respectful as possible in my work with field recordings if I'm doing field recordings off my country, I will only do that with the permission of traditional owners from the country that I'm on. Um, I have done that a few times. Um, I've done a couple of different things in the quote-unquote Sydney um, area across a couple of different countries, and it's really been a privilege to be able to do that because those are the sounds that I hear, you know, every day where I live, um, and then it's nice to to actually have permission to work with those. Um, but that's my personal principles for how I work with... Um, how I work with field recordings. And, you know, even in the um, the language that we use, so, you know, I often go to say, oh, I take field recordings, you know, but that's not actually what I want to, That that's not actually the relationship that I want to have. That kind of ethnographic um, history of a field recording is something that, you know, I um, I want my work to be completely diverted from. So, um, you know, I'm not um, taking recordings of, um, you know, of people really, honestly. Um, It's quote unquote nature, but also without that, that Mm -hmm. um, artificial dividing line between nature and the the so-called unnatural.
0: Yeah. Mm. And you like everything you were just describing then as well, particularly when it comes when we talk about, you know, reconnection and continual connection, so much of it involves deep listening and even just the practice of um, gaining that permission from traditional owners, like that's a, another form of listening as well. And it kind of sounds like it all really informs
2: your work from beginning to end. Uh, yeah, that's true. So um, I, I suppose I, the, the listening aspect, um, I used to be, it's it changed my own relationship to listening a lot. You know, I'm a high stimulation person. Um, I used to, you know, whenever I would leave the house, I would have a pair of headphones on and I'd be listening to like music or podcasts or whatever. And I, and if I wasn't doing that, I was like, no, I'm not getting enough stimulation. I'm bored, you know? Um, And through that, through that process of um, you know making those recordings and then listening to them, it's quite a long process as well. Listening to them once you've made them, um, you know, and, and working with them, then um, working with them, you know, quite deeply. Through that process, I now often, you know, if I, whenever I'm outside or indeed when I'm in the house, you know, where I live, there's there's birds, there's cockatoos, there's um, lorikeets. There's um, kookaburras, there's crows that I hear all the time just outside of the window. Sometimes I'm working on my music and I can't actually tell whether I'm listening to the birds in the recordings or the birds outside my window, um, but I'm much more attuned. So I think it's I think it's attuned me not only to what's going on when I'm on my country, but to my general experience of how it is to be in the world as well.
1: You were speaking before about how... Um you have been producing music for a long time and i guess the way that you produce music has shifted a lot in the ways and the new ways in which you're connecting to country and the way you speak about your music they feel like such alive things that you're like in ongoing relationship with do you ever feel like you know this idea that you know if you're a producer a song is like done do you feel like songs are done or do you do you wish that you could go back and kind of like rework them i mean there is opportunity to do that in your live settings but yeah do you ever feel that maybe your songs are never done
2: I think one of the really important lessons as a producer that you need to learn is to finish things <laughs> and a lot of people have a lot of issues with that understandably because it's so hard to say end um, you know I'm going to and and honestly having deadlines is often the best way to do that <laughs> like for me at least um, you can tinker endlessly and I think also with, particularly in the electronic music space, it's very easy to tinker endlessly. I don't listen, like a lot of people, I think I don't listen back to my own stuff that much once I put it out there because I will tend to hear things that I'm like, oh, I wish I, you know, I wish I could have changed that. But I th- I actually think that's not the right attitude to have, you know, I think it's it's natural and human. I, I suppose the other idea that I like, which artist that I like, I see them doing it, is um revisiting not only in live settings but in recorded output over time revisiting your work if you think of an artist like Coyle who I'm listening to a lot at the moment they will have four or five versions of a track over the course of their you know over the course of 10 year you know 10 15 years I reuse a lot of sounds um if I've got a particular sound um, you know, in a track that I really like, um, then I might pull that out and use it again in a different context. And I think that also builds a sound world over the course of different, um, you know, different releases as well. And I quite like that idea that when listeners are listening to your work, they're part of an ongoing world that, that you've created or that you've kind of helped to bring forth, um, rather than just in one discrete piece.
1: Mm. Speaking of live settings, um, next week at Soft Center, you'll be performing the first live version of this album. When you're playing a bigger event like Soft Center, where crowds can be quite diverse and unpredictable, how do you preserve the, you know, the sacredness of the sounds you've created in your in your internal world in a new and a and public setting?
2: That is something that I think about a lot. Um, I think. What I guess the the best way to do that I think is to create an atmosphere which in itself calls in its own kind of sound quality, hopefully, calls for respect, you know. Like I know that it's different for me, um, you know, if I'm listening. My my own response is they're both super fun but quite different. Um, if I'm listening to, you know, if I'm out somewhere and I'm listening to, like, a cheeky pop edit versus, like... um, And I don't want to say... In saying that, I don't want to say that there's kind of serious music and, you know, um, uh, frippery kind of music, you know, and the latter is is less than the former. But I definitely think... You know, I'm working on another project at the moment um, that's about using AI... In relation to sound sources, and I'm thinking, and I want to do some some Black history of the, um, you know, the site that I'm working on. But I'm thinking really, really hard because a lot of approaches that you might usually take, like you know, creating generative stuff, or I'm like, I don't think that's a respectful approach in this in this case. How can I how can I do this? Um, so yeah, I think for Soft Center, that's that's kind of how I'll how I'll think about it to try to have in the timbre of the sound itself that that feeling that hopefully will elicit that response.
0: Mm.
1: And moving from the club to another, I guess, historically um, complicated setting, the gallery. Um, you've created some work as part of a show at Cement Fondue uh, titled Nara Deep Listening alongside Bark G artist Madison Gibbs. It's an immersive exhibition that invites meditation on the care of culture and country through acts of listening. Can you tell us how it was to nurture this collaborative relationship and how the show came out of that?
2: Yeah, it was a really interesting process. So um, we did... We- we worked over quite a long period of time um, with various um, community community organizations. So um, did some work with um, youth um, and Ani Julie um, out at um, Darragland at um, Parramatta. And then we also had some engagement um, with um, Gajaga at Darawal at LARPA. Um, and um, I got some really amazing recordings, um, at, at LARPA, which is obviously La Perouse, which is obviously such an important site, you know, for, um, black history. Um, and also, um, Mali from Gajaga did some really amazing language recordings, which I incorporated into that piece, which I was very grateful to. Um, so there was, and then Maddie and I, you know, had had separate, um, concepts. So the, the, um, piece, the kind of sculptural and kind of light pieces that Maddie has done have an aspect of uh being about kind of environmental um destruction, you know, under colonization and um climate change. And um so there was a bit of a dark element to that work and there's I also often tend to have a bit of a dark element. You know, the first scene I was ever involved with was the goth scene. Um there's often a dark element to what I kind of do. And also I think we both brought this idea of using natural materials which were then um, mutated in some kind of way. So when you look at Maddie's work, you see these spirits, essentially, that she's she's created from, um, from wood. Um, and with my work, I, I always want it to kind of sit in this place, or the place that I most like for my work is a place where you have where the sound, the original source of the sound is still apparent. So you haven't edited it so much that it sounds like, you know, something that could have come out of a synthesizer um, or a drum machine or whatever. Um, But that it also sounds a little bit mutated and a little bit uncanny and kind of robotic or machinic and unfamiliar. And I think that's about that. I think of it as having that indigenous futurisms approach. Mm -hmm. So um, it was, it was a, 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 a path, quite a uh, you know, long term interesting path that we we came and um, a really beautiful coincidence as well. I think that Maddie and I we we talked about it a lot over the course of putting stuff together as well, but you know had had these concepts that just gelled, kind of gelled from the start. Mm.
0: And your sound piece in that exhibition, Janwang Ga- Gaul, speaks to the ways in which the tools of colonising society can be repurposed to recreate connection in the face of alienation. Uh, you really play with the confines of time and space. What, for you, defines the ways we shift our attention to actually be deep listening?
2: So my thinking is... There's really interesting field recording pieces whose whose actual purpose is to create to try to create a historical um you know what would have been a historical listening um experience naturalistically. Uh, so there's a piece that I'm always inspired by, although it doesn't sound like my work at all, called "In Saint Cuthbert's Time," um, which is I think the experience of what it would have been like on a you know an island monastery off the English coast in the 14th century um, you know, what was the, the listening experience at that time. Um, but I have never wanted to try to create, um, those naturalistic kind of soundscapes. Um, what I, I think that, yeah, we use those, we use those tools. And I think of artists, I think of, you know, Afrofuturism, um, you know, artists like Drexia, big inspiration, um, and the mythology that they created. You know, wasn't only about using the technology, it was also about creating a kind of a mythology around that work, which with Drexia was to do with the middle the middle passage and the the experience of slavery. Um, to create something that uses those technologies to speak back, and I think one of the things I like about the kind of sounds that I've just talked about that I like to create, which sound somewhat mutated, um, is that it? I think it calls you to attention as a listener as well. You know, there's a lot of um, field recording or ambient work which has background qualities, which can be really nice if that's what you're using it for. Um, But I like the ear to just kind of prick up, you know, and think, oh, that that sounds a little bit unexpected Mm. um, and kind of play with the expectation that way. And I think that brings you into an interesting listening relationship.
1: Mm. Uh, we touched on this before, but yeah, there's been a significant shift to feature the sounds and work of First Nations artists, be that in the gallery or in the club settings. How effective do you think this is a, as a means of redefining and, and decolonizing the, those structures themselves?
2: I think there's a lot more work to do. Um, you know, it's nice to see that um, that process, people are consciously thinking about that process. Um, and, you know, I know that, um, myself and a couple of people that I know have just been trying to, um, create more opportunities for first nations artists as well. You know, like if you think about, uh, you know, Warang and kind of surrounds, um, there's not, there's not that many black DJs here, even if you compare to like Nam, for example, like, um, so trying to think at how do we, how do we nurture, um, people coming up and I've been having some chats with people about mentorship and that kind of thing, which hopefully will come to something. But at the same time, I think your experience often can be, um, tokenistic. Um, people, people might ask you for, people don't necessarily want the whole of your experience or the whole of what you have to offer. I mean, it's always a, it's, you know, there's always kind of conversations, but when you're, when you're thinking about, um, you know, working working with an artist, what are the respectful ways to do that? And I think one of the things that can happen to you as a First Nations artist, and I'm sure this happens to other artists, but I can only speak to my own experience, is that people want you because they want a, they want a First Nations artist because they're thinking about diversity, which is like a good first step, as long as it's not tokenistic. But then they have a very then they have an idea in their head about what they want, um, you know, which which may not actually fit you where where you're coming from, you know, as a First Nations artist, kind of thing. So so it's about negotiating those kinds of spaces. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'd like to see, you know, if people are thinking about oh, I want I want someone First Nations on my lineup, or hopefully more than one. But that's the other thing. It's often like I'll get one person, and mm-hmm. you know, that'll cover that'll cover yep. that um, you know, to think a bit more deeply about what does it actually mean to how do I meaningfully engage rather than just like drop someone in, you know, because I want to tick that box, but not take take them as a whole person or as a whole artist.
0: Yeah. I think it's a it's a conversation that many First Nations creatives are fully prepared to or all creatives of colour, you know, like uh, wanting to engage with this bigger, um, important um narrative of how the rest of The system engages with us whether is it truly on their terms or you know and us trying to navigate am I safe enough to enter into this as well if it is you know is this a um, collaboration and a um, respectful relationship that I'm about to engage in this space or you know is it like you were just saying like to tick their box and purely tokenistic and then how do I now manage moving forward is that something that comes into your mind as well
2: yeah 100% and I think you know as other people will recognise as well you I think you feel like you need to hold yourself to, um, standards that other people might not necessarily get held to because of the stereotypes, stereotypes out there. Um, you know, that I personally, I, on the one hand, I'm like, you know, I, I know that if people, you know, think about me, like if I make a mistake, you know, or, um, Mm. you know, get something wrong or whatever, then it can, it can have a heavier, like a heavier weight on the the way people take it because I'll feel like I'm living up to, um, stereotypes. But at the same time, I don't want to completely, I'll always do my best, but I don't want to completely bind myself to, um, having to fit with, like having to fit within those systems because I'm scared of the stereotypes Mm. that will be put on me. As well.
0: Yeah. Well, we are naturally coming towards the end of our time spent with, with you, which we're so grateful for. And we ask this of all of our guests that come into the space. And that is Rowan Savage, when did you realize there was power in your race?
2: It was a bit later in life for me because of the history. The, the history that I've talked about. And, you know, I'm white passing. Um, that makes my experience quite different than, than people who aren't. But what it was for me, you know, my my family, white fellow side of my family is from England. Um, we lived there when I was a kid. Um, and when we, I, I'd always had this feeling in Australia that something was a bit wrong, or I was a bit out of place. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I knew there were certain things that I really loved and connected with, you know, um, I knew I loved the ocean. I knew I loved kind of subtropical climates and that's where I felt at home and I felt right, but I didn't, I didn't quite know why that was. And then when I got in touch with my family and my culture, ever since then, I felt so much more grounded in myself. Um, and you know, just you can feel the power literally coming up from the earth you know um sometimes I feel that I feel like I feel that in a very physical way literally kind of flowing flowing you know flowing into my body um and it's it's that kind of power and groundedness that I'm trying to put into the work that I put out there
1: Rowan, thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing your time with us um, here on Race Matters. You can catch the exhibition NARA, Deep Listening, at Cement Fondue right now until December 3. You can also catch um, Salvage live at Soft Centre this weekend as part of the late-night program, playing alongside Abdadir, Eep, Anurag, Amalg, and we'll link all of those details in our show notes, Mm fbiradio.com